wouldn't really take you a whole lot of digging or a whole lot of research to be able to find a story or an article in today's media that describe or discuss what many to believe the decline of the American church, the decline of the Christian church in America. And it's not just in the Christian media anywhere. It's all across the spectrum. Matter of fact, if you were to do a Google search of those words, decline Christian church in America, over 917,000 hits come back with titles across news articles like this. Why is Christianity dying in America by the New York Times? America's Empty Church Problem by the Atlantic Magazine. The Christian America is dying in the Washington Post. The declining state of the church in America and Christianity today. The Christian church's identity problem in U.S. News. The decline of evangelical America in USA Today. And that's not to mention all of the books and all of the seminars and all of the experts that examine that we have declining attendance, that we have declining conversions, that people are leaving the church, that generations are leaving the church, that churches across America are closing, all trying to identify what is going on and why is it happening and more importantly, what can we do about it? But if we had to be honest, for those of us that have been in church for any amount of time, we don't need to read articles, and we don't need to look at books, and we don't even need to hear experts. We can see it with our own eyes. Probably every one of you in here that has been in church for any amount of time know of people, friends, family, that at one time were very active in church. They were involved, they served, they, they even led, but something or other caused them to drift away, and in drifting away, they've never come back. Some of you have friends, some of you have your own Children, children who were raised in church, children who uh, heard about the Lord all of their life, who were very involved in church, but as they got older and they began to have their own children, now church is not an option for them. It's not even on the radar. It's not even something that they would think about. They've dropped completely out. All across our country, we have churches that have uh, numerous numbers of members on their roll, claiming that, that they've got hundreds or thousands of people that are members of their church, but yet on any given Sunday, less than 25% of those numbers are in attendance. For most of us, that's the reality that we're dealing with today. And as a pastor of an evangelical Christian church, as someone who's read most of those articles, someone who has uh, read those books, who has been to conventions, been to conferences, I've heard the experts, it would be very easy to get discouraged. be very easy for us to get alarmed. But I have to tell you in all honesty that I am more excited today about what God is doing than in any other time in my ministry. Now, I am brokenhearted over the people that we failed. I'm brokenhearted over the people that ha have turned away from the church. I'm brokenhearted over all of those who, who blame the church for problems and difficulties in their life and who are no longer part of an active faith community. But see, I don't think we're in crisis. I think we're in a correction. Because see, for the last 35 to 40 years, the American church has developed into a consumer-driven entity. The American church has become more about what people want instead of what God has called us to be. 
Instead of being a Holy Spirit-led agent of change, we are now more about pleasing and giving people what they think they want or what they think they need instead of focusing on what God has already given us in light of our needs. Now, I'm not talking about every church, and I'm speaking in generalities, but for our community, for our nation, that's the perception We've grown into the idea of pragmatism and everything that is bigger has to be better. And the church is paying the price. We've turned our worship services into concerts and we wonder why nobody sings anymore. We've turned our sermons into to needs-based sermonettes where we're more interested in how God can help you instead of what you can do to serve God. And over those last 35 or 40 years, we are reaping what we've sown. Philosophy today is if we don't get what we like at one church, if they don't do it the way we want, if they don't do it how we like it, then we'll just go to the church down the road. It's become now that we choose our churches in the same way that we choose our grocery stores. Whatever's the biggest, whatever's the brightest, whatever offers me the most selections without community ever being a factor without God's direction without God's will ever being a factor now I wish I could tell you I have the answers but I don't I don't pretend to know what we're supposed to do about this but I do know in church history this is nothing new that all throughout the history in the last 2,000 years of the church God has taken corrections and renewals and revivals to bring His people back to Him. And I believe today in America, we are at that place. Now, as I said, I don't have the answers, but I believe the Word of God does. And so, as I said earlier this morning, I'm starting a very important series for us in this church called Living Sacrifices. God believe that through this series and as we work through these passages, God is going to give us some answers. God is going to give us some direction. And more importantly, He will speak to us personally about not only what is going on in America, but what role you and I play with it. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to walk through Romans chapter 12, looking at several different verses, because I believe Romans 12 is a pivotal important passage for the church in America today. Now, if you uh, have studied Romans, if you've looked at Romans, you know that Romans 12 is a turning point in the book of Romans. Most people are intimidated by Romans. Most people uh, get scared trying to work through Romans or even read Romans. Romans is probably the most doctrinally or theologically full book or letter of any Paul's writings. Full of incredible doc 12 is pivotal because you see, In the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul lays out some of the most important doctrinal truths of the church. He talks about sin. He talks about salvation. He talks about grace. He talks about justification, how you and I are made right before God. He talks about forgiveness and what forgiveness means. He talks about God's unconditional love. And then when he comes to chapter 12, he transitions from from what has been descriptive, describing all of those things, to what becomes prescriptive. How then are we supposed to live 
according to those truths. So that's Paul's pattern. If you've studied Paul, you've been with us when we, we did walk through Galatians, we did walk through Ephesians, he does the same thing in, in Colossians. Paul always starts his letters by outlining doctrine, by giving certain truths, and then somewhere in the letter he makes a turn to begin to go to application. He makes a turn where he begins to go from what we believe to how our behavior lives out that belief. And it, it follows the same pattern. And chapter 12 is that point in the book of Romans where Paul Paul makes the change, where Paul begins to turn, where Paul begins to build on all that he's said before. And as he does that, uh, this is a natural transition for Paul because Paul believed that belief without behavior meant nothing. Paul believed that what we believe, what we hold true, will always come out in the way that we live. If we have doctrines, if we have truths that really are important to us, that we really hold fast to, that somewhere along the line, not only will we embrace that truth, but that truth will embrace us. It will become a part of our lives. So as Paul always writes this way, he is naturally believing that those who are Christ followers, once they discover the truth of the Word of God, they will apply it to their lives. Doctrine and knowledge without application leads to nothing more than just a cold, lifeless, ritual religion. You see, what Paul is calling us to this morning is to take the truths that we discover in God's Word and apply them to our lives. And so chapter 12 becomes what many people call the, the if-then or because-then chapter. What that means is because of all that you've heard in chapters 1 through 11, then chapters 12 through 15, you're supposed to live this way. He describes what it looks like lived out, what these doctrines mean lived out. That's why chapter 12 is so pivotal. And if chapter 12 is pivotal, then the first two verses are key because the first two verses are the foundation of everything else to follow. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, you've probably heard me quote Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I quote it uh, every other week, it seems like. It's one of my life verses. I believe it is a foundational verse for any Christian to experience the power of God. It is a foundational verse for any Christian to experience an active, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a part of who we are. And so I, I quote it all the time. But the problem with hearing a verse all the time and hearing it quoted all the time, is we have a tendency to just kind of skip past it. You have verses in your life that you hear people quote, you grew up hearing, you hear people all the time. And so when you naturally hear somebody say it or read it or teach it, our tendency is just to kind of go, okay, I've heard that, okay, I know that. And we miss the power that is released in those passages. So this morning what I want to do is I want to take Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and we are going to walk through it word by word. And as we walk through it word by word, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart. That the Holy Spirit will help you understand how important this principle is for your life. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian a week or if you've been a Christian for 50 years. This is foundational to your walk with God. So let's read what he says. Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Now, he starts off amplifying what I just told you, therefore, and we've talked about therefore, is he is referring back to everything that he said before. Now, people debate and people argue, is, is he talking about everything in, in Romans 1 through 11, or is he talking about the end of chapter 11? And the answer is both. 
You see, what he is trying to get across is in light of all that God has done, in light of of us being saved by faith, in light of your sins being washed away, in light of Jesus' unconditional love for you, in light of all that God has ever done for you, I'm about to ask you to do something. Therefore, in light of, I urge you brothers... Now that idea, I urge you, brothers. Brothers is a term to mean he's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to those who have already given their life to Christ. So what he is saying here, what he is about to urge us, is something separate from the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ. You see, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and become a part of the family, you become a Christian, this act that he's expecting from you and I is something that takes place apart from that. And he says, I urge you. The King James Version says, I beseech you. This is a plea. This is Paul saying, listen, this is very important for every one of you to hear. I encourage you. And by urging, you see, he doesn't say, I command you. doesn't say, I expect you, because this is a choice. He's about to give every Christian, anyone who claims the name Jesus Christ, a very important choice. It's a choice that you and I have to make on our own. It's a choice that no one can make for us. But it's a choice that apparently to Paul was very important. But you need to understand it's voluntary. He says, in light of all that God's done for you, I plead with you, I beg you, I beseech you to do what? To offer to God. Now that idea of offering to God, again, not only comes with this, this inclination that we are to do something voluntarily or we are supposed to, to give something, but it's a, it's a technical term. It's the term that they used to use when a, a priest would prepare a sacrifice, when a priest would, would get the sacrifice ready to lay on the altar. It, it was an offering. And the indication of this offering, because of the tense, it tells us not only is this a one-time offering, he is saying, I'm encouraging you to offer to God this one-time offering, but it's an offering that continues. It doesn't just stop the moment you offer. I am offering to God, and I am continuing to allow that offering to take place. So, So Paul is saying, Christian, church member, if you don't hear anything else, please hear this. I urge you to offer something to God. Now this picture of offering something to God carries with it some weight. Because you see, when you would give an offering in the Old Testament, everything that you offered, you relinquished your control over. You took your hands off of it. Anything that you offered to God was no longer yours. And so what Paul is saying to you and I is this offering that he wants us to give to God is something that once we give, we can't take back. Once we give, we take our hands off of. We give with everything we have. We say, look, I am releasing this to you, God. I am relinquishing control. I am relinquishing authority. It is now yours. It's also understood that this idea of offering is something that's freely given. God's not looking for you to give something to Him that you're guilted into giving. God's not looking for you to give something to Him that that you feel is a repayment for something that He's done. God's not looking for you to give something to Him that is an emotional decision or a coerced decision. You see, the decision to offer something to God is a thought-out, conscious decision. See, the problem for many of us, 
The things that we offer to God, we do with the wrong motivation. It's the reason we really don't offer it to Him. Whatever it is. But we do it because we feel guilty. Somebody has a, a bad weekend and you, you, you've done some things that you're embarrassed about. You've done some things that you don't like to do. And so you come to church and, and you say, okay, God, I'm going to give you this money or I'm going to give you this time or we commit to, to doing something for God out of guilt. Paul says, that's not what I'm looking for. Paul says, I'm looking for you to make a conscious, thought-out decision that you are going to offer something to God. So what is he asking us to offer? He says, offer your bodies. Now in the New Testament, every time the word bodies is used, it is more involved than just your physical body, but it does count your physical body. When he says that you are to offer your bodies unto God, he is talking about your total and complete self. He is talking about your desires, your thoughts, your actions, your will, everything that you've ever done, everything that you are doing now, everything that you will do. He is talking about your body, your soul, your spirit. He says that I am calling on you. I am urging you to give freely your own choice, yourself to God. To lay yourself on the altar. You see, in reality, that's what Abraham did when he took Isaac there. While Isaac was his son, Isaac represented everything that Abraham cared about. And so by taking what was most important to his life and laying it on the altar as a sacrifice to God, what he was saying is, here is who I am. And what Paul is saying for a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, the most important thing you can do is to take everything that you are, everything that you have, everything that you think, everything that you do, and lay it on God's altar, giving it freely to Him. Do you understand what God is really asking of you? See, God doesn't want just part of you. God doesn't want your weekends. God doesn't want what, what you're not using at the time. God wants all of it or God wants nothing. He says, offer your complete body, total surrender. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Earlier in Romans 6, verse 13, he says, Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. You see, God wants everything. I heard a pastor say one time that God wants our feet so that they might walk in obedience to His path, that God wants our lips, so that we might always speak the truth and share the gospel of love. God wants our tongue, so that it can bring healing to those who are hurting. God wants our arms, so that we can embrace the unloved and those who are hurt. God wants our hands, so that we can lift up those who are fallen. God wants our hands, so that we can serve others around us. God wants our eyes so that we can see Him moving and, and, and at will around us. God wants our hearts and God wants our mind so they can be focused on the Holy Spirit's call on our life. So I'm going to ask you this this morning. Have you ever offered your body, everything that you are, to Jesus Christ? Have you ever made the conscious choice of saying, God, here it is, I'm giving all of it to you? You see, here's the key. Here's what, what keeps us from the reality of, of it being a decision 
and it being a commitment. Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, this had to have blown his audience away because they didn't know anything about a living sacrifice. See, in their religious culture, in the Old Covenant, the sacrificial system, sacrifices always died. As a matter of fact, the word sacrifice in and of itself means death. It implies something dying. And this becomes the ultimate paradox of the Christian faith. That's exactly what Jesus is calling you to. You see, by offering your bodies as a living sacrifice, what Jesus is saying, the only way that works, the only way it becomes a reality is you must die. And in that is the paradox, because in dying, you actually live. Jesus said it himself, anyone who comes to me, let him come and die. Anyone who wants to find his life must lose his life. Paul said what? I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. You see, a living sacrifice is the ability for you to say, I die to everything that I was. And I offer it all to God. But in offering all to God, God takes that death. God takes that old self. God takes all of those things we saw in that video and He redeems it. The word redeem, to give worth. He takes it and now instead of a dead sacrifice, God's not looking for you to die for Him. It's a live sacrifice. A sacrifice that has been killed that now gets off the altar and everything it does, once it gets off the altar, gives honor and glory to God. Serves Him with every part of His body. And you see, when you begin to put it in that context, when you begin to think about sacrifice, that's when our altars start getting empty. Because you see, there's no such thing as a partial sacrifice. There's no such thing as a temporary sacrifice. There's no place in the New Testament where Paul or Jesus or Peter says, listen, God just wants part of a sacrifice. God just wants a little bit of it. Because you see, without complete sacrifice, there cannot be complete life. Until you are willing to give everything that you have, God can't replace it with the living part. You can't experience new life. You can't experience the power of God. You can't experience worship in power. You can't experience the promises of God until you have given a sacrifice to God. That's why I said earlier that worship, giving God worthy, always requires a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is you. That sacrifice is you making a conscious decision. God, here I am. God, take me. You see, He's calling us to put ourselves on the altar. You see, I think in church, we're we're more than willing to put our money on the altar, some of us. We're willing to put our sins on the altar. We're willing to put our families on the altar. We're willing to put, you know, our jobs on the altar. I've had people say, well, listen, we're going to come and God here, take my job and make it yours or take my family, God, and anoint it. And all of those things are important. But do you understand God does not take those things apart from taking you? God doesn't want your money as much as he wants your life. God doesn't want your job. God doesn't want your sin as much as he wants you. In every part of you, every thought, every part of your heart. Now he says about this living sacrifice two things. 
And the Bible says in that resurrection power, you and I become a living sacrifice, giving ourselves to God at His altar, our heart, saying, here I am. But then we're called to get up and live. And in getting up and living, He says, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God. Because see, once we give Him everything that we have, once He replaces our, our old life for a new life, once He takes everything that we've given Him, then as we get up to live for Him and continue to walk in Him, we become a walking testimony to His grace and His mercy and His redemption. And He calls that testimony to be holy. That, that word holy there is talking about sanctification, not justification. He's talking about us making our lives more like Christ. He's talking about when we offer ourselves as a sacrifice, the change that takes place is we become holy, more like God. This isn't the, the justification where God makes us holy in God's eyes. This is the holiness that comes from our effort with the Holy Spirit's leadership to be more like Jesus. That as we leave this place, we're changed. You see, you can't go to the altar. You can't offer yourself. You can't give God everything and walk away not changed. If there's never been a change in your life, if, if all you did was walk down an aisle and fill out a card or cry at a youth camp or, or come at a revival and get wet in a baptistry and there was never a change in your life, then you've never been to the altar. Because you see, when you come away from that place, there is a desire in your heart to be more like Jesus Christ. And you can't do that on your own. You, you can't. The Holy Spirit has to help you. Your whole goals change. You see, my goal now as I walk away from the altar, as I walk away from giving myself as a living sacrifice, my goal is no longer to be popular. My goal is no longer to be liked. My goal is no longer to have a big house or to make lots of money or to, to do all the things that the world might say is a success. My only goal now is to please God, holy and pleasing unto God. And everything that I do, I ask, will this please God? That's heavy. That's why we don't hear it a whole lot. It's convicting. Not something we just want to throw around and it brings new meaning to this verse. But you see, here's what I want you to hear. And I'm almost done, but this is the most important part. Paul knew when he urged us to do this that this would be a hard choice. He knew that you and I were going to struggle because our old self does not want to go on that altar our old desires, our old nature, our old things, it will fight kicking and screaming to get to that altar. So before he ever urged us, he slipped a little part in earlier in the verse that tells us what can motivate us to get to the altar. Did you see it? I, I skipped over it. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. What would motivate us to want to give everything to God? Well, you would say, well, because of what He gives us back, right? That's the mentality today. I'll serve God. I'll give everything to God because He's going to give me and He's going to give me. Paul said, no, that won't motivate you. The only thing that will really motivate you, the only thing that will really keep you sacrificing yourself is the idea and understanding of all that God's done for you already. Mercy. It's the ultimate part of God's nature. It's part of who He is. You see, if justice is getting what we deserve, mercy steps in and gives us 
not what we deserve. It's part of grace. See, justice says that you and I deserve death. Justice says you and I deserve the consequences of our action. Justice says that you and I should be punished for turning our backs on God, for cussing God, for denying God, for disobeying God. But God's very nature was mercy, and it steps in and saves us. And Paul said, when you ever begin to understand God's mercy to you, you can't help but want to give a sacrifice. See, anything else that motivates you, it'll end. The Bible said the idea and thought of God's mercy is renewed every day. Because see, God didn't just give you mercy one time. He gives you mercy continually. And the problem with most of us is we don't realize how precious that mercy was. Paul just spent 11 chapters talking about how God's mercy saved us. It was because of God's mercy that we've been made right. It was because of God's mercy that Christ went to the cross. It's because of God's mercy that you and I are made new creation. It's because of God's mercy that we now have new life. It's because of God's mercy that we no longer fear death. Moses said this about God. For the Lord your God is merciful. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant he had with your forefathers. You see, you need to hear me this morning. God's mercy is for you. What's the prerequisite for mercy? What does it require to receive mercy? Doing something wrong. Sin. And if you've sinned this morning, if you've blown it, if you've made mistakes, guess what? You're qualified for God's mercy. And God wants to take your guilt and turn it into acceptance. And when we as believers begin to contemplate what that mercy means, it changes your life, changes your worship, changes your walk. No matter what we've done this morning, God's mercy is available. Paul is getting at is that if the church could ever really grasp how precious, how deep, how incredible God's mercy is to you and I, there'd be no hesitation to offer ourselves in return. You see, if we could ever really grasp how much God's forgiven you, then the only logical response would be to say, here I am, take all of me, God. We sang the song by Isaac Watt last week, The Wonderful Cross, describes it perfectly. What does he say? Love so amazing, love so divine. What? Demands my soul, my life, my all. At the end of the passage... Verse 1, he says this, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. And that's one of the times where the NIV translators miss it because spiritual is not really a good capture of what he's trying to say here. King James does a better version. It says it is your reasonable because it's the word spiritual, reasonable, where we get the word logic. He's saying when you really understand God's mercy, the only logical response, the only reasonable response is to say to God, take me. I offer myself to you. Commentator James Boyce wrote this, the extent to which we do not offer ourselves to God reflects the extent to which we do not understand the depths and significance of God's mercy. In the church today, we know we've been forgiven, but we overestimate our goodness while underestimating the amount of mercy we have been received. 
You see, when we really look at ourselves and look at what we bring to the table and look at what God's done for us, not because we earned it, simply because He's merciful, it changes everything. And when you do that, guess what happens? It's no longer a sacrifice. It's no longer giving something up. Matter of fact, it becomes an honor. It becomes a privilege. When I think that the creator of the universe gives me mercy, gave me mercy, will give me mercy, it's not a sacrifice to say to him, take me. It's the call of my heart as one of his children. God is calling you to do the same. My hero in the faith, Jim Elliott, famous quote, martyred missionary. He is no fool who gives up that which he could never keep to gain that which he could never lose. The honesty thing is we live in a society today that wants everything without sacrifice. Don't we? We want to lose weight. We just don't want to sacrifice to get there. We want to make a lot of money. We just don't want to sacrifice to get there. Want to have a good job. We just don't want to sacrifice to get there. And that same mentality is crossed over into the church. You see, we want the power of God in our life. We want to understand God's will for our life and God's purposes for our life. We want to see God move, but we don't want to sacrifice to get there. Please hear me. If you're not seeing God move in your life, if you can't hear His voice, if your worship has grown stale, if you struggle with it, this morning, if your guilt is overwhelming you, this morning, if, if you're not seeing God's hand move, if you're not sensing the Holy Spirit's move around you, the answer is not to go find a new devotional book. The answer is not to go join another Bible study. The answer is not for you to find another church. The answer is for you to look at the altar and see what you find there. Because sadly... In our churches today, we have too many empty altars. And this morning, God asks you, through Paul, will you offer yourselves as a living sacrifice? Have you offered yourselves as a living sacrifice? Complete sacrifice. Holy and pleasing unto Him. What's your altar look like? Let's pray.